So I don't have to tell anyone that we're living in unprecedented times. We have 150 countries in lockdown. It's Mother's Day. Our church is empty. Easter, our church was empty. So we're dealing with a lot of uncertainty right now, uncertainty about the future. And when you're uncertain about the future, it brings out anxiety and fear. And so there's a lot of troubled hearts out there. My heart is troubled. There's people sick. There's people dying. Uh, we have high rates of unemployment. And, and listen, there were troubled hearts before COVID-19. Even though we live in the most prosperous nation in the world, we still have our afflictions. We have racism, gun violence. I've talked about the opioid ep epidemic several times. There's still disease that ravages each and every one of us in our family. So, so anxiety was already at a high level. Now you add COVID-19 and uh, there is just trouble everywhere you look. And there's so much uncertainty about the future. Now, here's the sad thing. People don't know where to turn. Uh, people that are not Christians, they don't have the Bible, a relationship with Jesus Christ, the power of the Holy Spirit. And all the foundations are crumbling. All the people they used to look to don't seem to have the answers anymore. Now, I know people joke about politicians, but there are leaders, and the Bible says we obey our leaders, and I believe they're trying the best they can. But as we look at political leaders, we're not sure if there's an agenda out there, if there's not an agenda. And we're hearing different things from different people. There's 50 governors, and many of them are saying different things. So in Pennsylvania last week, they opened golf courses. Praise the Lord. And uh, I golfed on Friday, and I golfed on Monday. Part of the reason I just wanted to golf, I missed it so much. And the other thing is I wanted to see the fear level that was out there. I wanted to see what something that opened up would look like, because we're going to open up our church. And so on Friday, I went to a course where... You had to have a face mask when, when, when you got in your cart. It was one man to a cart, not two. And no pencil, no scorecard, uh, no clubhouse, no bathrooms. And then Monday I go golfing, and now it's two to a cart. There's a scorecard. There's a pencil. The clubhouse is selling hot dogs. And you're thinking, oh, my gosh, two courses 10 miles away. What is going on? And you're starting to realize we don't know much about what's going on. We look at doctors. You can line up 10 doctors, and seemingly they'll say 10 different things. Uh, I know my doctor, when I emailed him and told him I had contracted COVID-19, this was his response, everyone's going to get it. Now, I don't know the information he has or the information others have, but it seems to be all over the place. The only thing that's really been true through the entire pandemic is, we need to wash our hands. That's the one thing that's true. The Jews have been doing it for 3,500 years, uh, and it works. And there's still this idea, we're troubled by the time we live in. Now, the one takeaway that I have is that Jesus knows our hearts. He knows we're troubled. And the reason I know is because in John chapter 14, at the Last Supper, Judas having left, Jesus looked in the, in the eyes of his disciples, and he saw fear. He saw trepidation. He knew there was anxiety. And so he says this in chapter 14 to his men, verse 1, Let your hearts not be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. And where I go, you know, and the way you know. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. And how can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth and the life. 
No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it will be sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, yet you have not known me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or believe me for the sake of the works themselves. The troubled hearts of the disciples were for one thing and one thing only. Jesus was leaving them. And um, he's been preparing them for a long time, almost a year. Began out at Caesarea Philippi. They take about a 30-mile walk from the Galilee, and they come to this pagan region. And in a grotto where there would have been, you know, small little temples and uh, pagan rituals going on, Jesus asked these disciples, who do men say that I am? And Peter answers and makes this de great declaration, you are the Christ, you're the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Peter, flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, and upon this revelation, the revelation that Jesus is the Christ, I will build my church, and the gates of heaven will not prevail against it. Jesus lays out this grand, as we know it now, 2,000-year vision of the church going into all the world, freeing people as he freed people, in the region of Jerusalem and Galilee. There's only one problem. The disciples were going to begin this mission without him. How do I know? Because Matthew adds a subscript in chapter 16, verse 21, where it says, from that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things by the elders, chief priests, and the scribes, be killed, and rise on the third day. Now, this is going on for some time. Jesus is imparting this vision slowly. So, you know, I can picture the guys when they're alone saying, um, you know, this isn't what we signed up for. They were looking for the kingdom of Israel to be established on earth. They were looking for the dream of the prophets, of Isaiah and Ezekiel and Jeremiah, a golden age, where the curse would be reversed and there would be an overthrow of Rome where they would sit on Jesus' right hand and on his left. And it would be a glorious kingdom. And in their minds, they're saying something we're probably saying now, and we probably say it far too often. This isn't the way it was supposed to be. A lot of times, we look at the situations in our lives. It could be a marriage, a romance, raising your children, a business venture. And we look around and say, this wasn't the plan I had for my life. This isn't the way it was supposed to be. Judas probably said that more often than the rest. The others, I'm sure, struggled. And you might say, well, he said he would rise on the third day. But you have to understand, resurrection meant nothing to them. You know, we think ancient people believed in things like the resurrection. They did not. When you were dead, you were dead. Dead was the last enemy then. It's still the last enemy now. And so it doesn't, you don't have to be a disciple of Jesus. Think about death for you and me. When we lose the ones we love, the first impression we have is, how can I go on without them? Or life's not worth living without them. And so these men looked into the eyes of Jesus, and they were struggling. They were full of fear, anxiety, and their hearts were troubled. And then you have to add to all of that their own failures. You know, at the end of dinner, when Judas left, 
Simon Peter says to Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him and said, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. Can you imagine hearing that? For a guy like Peter who was zealous and loved the Lord to hear that he would deny Christ three times. And so a lot of times, not only is there anxiety about the trouble in the world, there's our own failure to God. We feel like we're letting him down. And certainly P Peter fit this category. And then Jesus says the remarkable words, the text I just read you, and really gives us cure for troubled hearts. So if your heart's troubled tonight, uh, or today, mine is also, um, I'm going to give you three cures for the troubled heart. And the first one sounds cliche, almost Sunday schoolish, but it's about as true as can be. And that is you have to trust Jesus completely. If you're going to make it through this pandemic, if you're going to make it through any trouble in life, uh, if, you, if you watch the interview with these three wonderful moms that grew up in conflict areas, the one thing you heard is they trusted Jesus completely. What does that mean? Well, think about it this way. Most people trust Jesus for salvation because he's a savior, right? Uh, remember Bono, the lead singer of U2 years ago, uh, was asked about his Christianity. He said, you know, as I look around the world, this gospel story about God coming from heaven and the Christmas story of him being born in a manger is still the greatest story I've ever heard. And he said, in a world where basically we believe in karma, grace is the better story. And then he said something that I never forgot, and he said, I'm counting on it. And I'm counting on it too. We can trust Jesus with our salvation. But why do so many Christians have trouble trusting Jesus with their lives? with their business ventures, with their decisions. See, if Jesus is going to be a part of you, he's got to be all of you. Salvation is complete. Trust is the bedrock of all relationships. A marriage only works if there's trust. An employer-employee relationship only works if there's trust. When you raise your children, there has to be trust. Now, there's a great question. Is trust given or is it earned? And I think the answer is both. I'll give you an example. It's pretty crass, but it works. So your credit card company, you fill out their brochure, and based on the information and data you give them, they give you a line of credit. There's an amount of trust, $500, $1,000. But the more you spend and the more you pay on time, they give you more to spend, $5,000, $10,000. And it's the same way in our relationships. I remember raising teenagers, and I think Monica and I raised teenagers for 19 consecutive years. We only have four children, but it was 19 consecutive years. And I remember my son one night uh, wanted to go somewhere, and when he shared it with us, I said, okay. And later, my wife was livid. Why in the world would I ever let him go to this place? And my answer was, he's never failed me yet. When he fails me, We'll talk about it, and then I'll make future decisions. That decision was based on trust. Jesus that night looked in the eyes of his disciples who were fearful. They were troubled. And he said, guys, you got to trust me on this. In my father's house are many mansions. 
If I go to prepare a place for you, I will one day come and receive you and you will be with me. He goes on later in the text and he says here to Philip, Philip, either believe me or believe the works, Philip. Believe the works. What Jesus was saying is, you can trust me. Peter, you can trust me. Remember that time you, your taxes were due? And I could have pulled a coin out of thin air, but I made you run down and catch a fish, and you open the fish, and there was the coin. You remember that, Peter? If I can do that, I can, I can come again and receive you to myself. Guys, remember you all went fishing? You're all fishermen. I'm a rabbi. Told you to cast on the other side, and you had a boatload of fish. And Jesus, excuse me, could have pointed to a number of stories where he had built their trust, and now he was asking for trust. Do you trust God completely this morning? Hebrews 11 is one of my favorite chapters because we see the men and women of faith. And then chapter 12 says, since we have such a cloud of witnesses, there's so many people who have trusted God and gone before us. And it says there at the end that they didn't even receive the promises. They trusted God and didn't see the end of their faith. How much more can we be those who trust God knowing that he's fulfilled so much in the path? Share with you guys a few weeks ago about the growth chart, how we're moving from fear to growth. One of the questions I began to ask myself this week is, how am I going to seize the day in this pandemic? How am I going to really grow? I don't want two or three months to go by and all I did was yard work and maybe painted a few bedrooms. I want to look and say, you know, God, what's the next phase of my life? I want to hit a giant reset button. We're hitting a reset button here at church. We're saying, wow, we've got a little more time on our hands uh, what's the most effective way to do ministry? Do we do ministry smaller? Do we go to another side of the county? It's a great time for all leaders and all families to think about a new way of doing things, trusting that God's going to bring good out of all of this. When the pandemic began, a friend of mine called and said he was going to make a sizable donation to our church for our staff. He didn't know stimuluses were coming and such. And um, it didn't surprise me because this same person, when he was laid off several years ago, the first thing he did was write checks to all the ministries he supports. He did it before God ever acted because he's trusted God all his life. By the way, he grew up in a conflict area. David said, I am now old. I was young and now I'm old. And there's two things I've never seen. The righteous forsaken or God's seed begging bread. In the quarantine, I've been with three of my grown children. It's been a blast. And, um, but you have to understand what's going on. Uh, all three of them are unmarried. Two of them have their own business. One's in grad school. And so every day, uh, emotions are raging because the future's uncertain. There's troubled hearts. Add to that, I'm trying to lead a church that has no people in it presently, and my wife's trying to lead a school that has no students. Put all that together, there's troubled hearts. The beautiful thing is we've prayed through this. We've said, God, help us to hit this reset button. We've trusted you all this time. Let us trust you through this. The second cure for a troubled heart is Jesus began to teach his men to live with an eternal perspective in mind. The New Testament says that we should be heavenly-minded. Now, it's not a cop-out. We're not so heavenly-minded. We're not earthly good. But when I look at the four questions the disciples asked night, that night, they were so earthly-minded. 
And Jesus begins to open up a brand new realm, another perspective to live life by. He begins to talk about heaven and these mansions that God has prepared for us. We all know these verses, in my Father's house are many mansions. Uh, the word mansion there is an abiding place. Now, imagine you're a translator of the Bible, the King James. You're in Elizabethan England. And so you come upon this abiding place, and you know it's in heaven. So the translators grasp for the one word that would signify what heaven was like, and they came up with this word, mansion. Think royalty. Think Buckingham Palace. Problem today is we all live in semi-mansions of some sort. But in that day, that was a picture of what heaven was to be. But it was far different than what Jesus was communicating. Jesus was telling the disciples, right now I'm in this abiding place. And then when I suffer and die, I will be in this abiding place. What Jesus was showing them, that in life there's a now and there's a not yet. He wasn't telling them to be heavenly minded and forget the things of earth. He was telling them to change their perspective. Listen, heaven's our home. Heaven's going to be glorious. It's going to be beyond comparison when we arrive there and when we enjoy it one day. But think of it this way, it's Mother's Day. You can't think about Mother's Day without thinking about home. I lost my mother 10 years ago. And someone once said, when mom dies, you can never go home. And there's something about home, whether it's familiar smells of pies baking or the fireplace, the green grass, whatever it is, home is what we remember. And in some ways, we're all longing for home. There's a groaning in every human being for something beyond this world. Because we know that love breaks down, relationships break down, almost everything in life that we long for ends or fails us. And in so many ways, we're trying to get back to Eden. We're trying to get home. And Jesus is revealing that heaven's going to be a place where home is finally established. It's going to be a glorious place. Paul saw heaven, so did the apostle John on the eye of Patmos. So heaven's not so much about what's it going to look like, what are the golf courses going to be like. Heaven's more about who are we going to become. Uh, there's a lot of books written about heaven. People claim they've gone, and they're telling us about it. Uh, sometimes somebody will come up to me and say, Pastor Bob, I just read this book, and it's built my faith. And I think many of you know I'm not fond of those books. We don't carry any in the bookstore. And when people ask me why, I tell them, here's why, because Paul saw the third heaven. And in 1 Corinthians 2.9, he wrote this, I hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard, nor has it entered the mind of man the things God has prepared for those who love him. Now it goes on to say he's revealed them by his spirit, but he hasn't revealed what it's going to look like, but who we're going to become. He revealed to the disciples that night, there's a now and there's a not yet. Peter, there's a now. Yes, you're going to deny me. Yes, I know the worst that's in you, Peter, but in the now I'm going to bring out the best that's in you. And you're going to be a rock. Peter would be crucified upside down. He would write books of the Bible. He was a stalwart and a pillar of the early church. Now listen, I like earth. It's all I know. I enjoy life. But I also know I'm only here for a mission and purpose, to love people, to tell them about Christ, 
to influence people. We all have a calling. So my now is established, and I live in that. But there's also a perspective of the not yet. When troubling times come, I have to be convinced that there's a place for me, that Jesus prepared it. The world has trained you, and sometimes Christians fall into this, that all you are is a consumer. You have no spirit or soul. You have no future and eternity. You are the sum total of the things you possess. The Bible said we're made in God's image, that we have souls and spirits, that one day we're going to have glorified bodies. And the beautiful thing is there's going to be a great reunion in heaven. How do I know? Jesus said there's many mansions there. Many, many, many. And in Revelation chapter 4, John says there were thousands beyond thousands. He gives us an innumerable number of the 24 elders, you and me, singing this song that we've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Whatever Paul saw in heaven, he wrote this in Romans 8.18. For I consider the present sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us, in heaven. This pandemic's real. People are dying, people are sick, people are losing jobs. I'm not underestimating that. But there is a glory so fantastic that one day we're going to look and this is going to be a light affliction. We live in the now. We have a purpose. We have a future. We have a hope. But one day, the not yet will come, and it will be glorious. Now, I need two minutes of your time. Because when you talk about heaven in our day, in the age of reason, people snicker and laugh. Heaven, you really believe in that place? Uh, so people want to know, where is heaven? How do I get there? Story, things like this. So let me give you some biblical language. The Bible describes the first heaven. The first heaven is what we would call the vault above the earth. Biblical language, the firmament, the sky, the atmosphere, the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now, what's amazing about this is that we know through science that sunsets come from the dust in the atmosphere. Windstorms are the result of high and low pressure zones. And um, we know that raindrops are really, uh, uh, hail is re refrigerated raindrops. So with all that physical knowledge, why are we still in awe by sunsets? Why, when we look at the moon and its grandeur, are we still moved by it? You know, when I come home and there's a full moon, uh, I can see it right over my house. And it's like my old friend, I look up. And I look at that and I think, God, it's just wondrous how you've made that moon. 24 million moons fit into the sun. And, uh, and I'm awestruck by it. And you might say I'm a believer, but, you know, I go to the beach and, you know, people are sitting there with wine glasses looking at sunsets. The reason is the heavens declare the glory of God. The earth is his handiwork. The second heaven is outer space. Now, few people have been there. But for the ones who have been there, they've had tremendous experiences. Frank Borman was a commander of one of the first space crews to travel beyond Earth's orbit. Looking down on the earth from 250,000 miles away, Borman radioed back the message quoting Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. 
When he was asked later about this, he said, I had an enormous feeling when he was in the second heaven that there had to be a power greater than any of us, that there was a God and there indeed was a beginning. Uh, James Irwin, who walked on the moon in 1971, who later became a minister of the gospel, he described uh, his experience in these words. He said, I felt the power of God as I never had before. And the astronaut John Glenn said, to look out at this kind of creation and not believe in God was almost impossible. And then the third heaven, Paul told us about in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And he explains his experience, that I know a man, he's being humble, it's, it's his experience, in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or whether out of the body I do not know, God knows such a one was caught to the third heaven. And I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows, how he was caught into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which is not lawful for a man to utter. Paul wasn't allowed to write his book. Why these guys are allowed to write their books, I don't know. I'll go with Paul. Paul saw things he couldn't put into the human language. Now, John had to put things in human language so we would understand the revelation. But the idea here is there is another perspective we have to look at. Look, life is hard, times are difficult. We're all struggling. When the pandemic began, somebody said this. The first thing you have to do is embrace the suck. Like, this is really hard. But as our panel of women said, we're going to make it because we're going to trust in God and we're going to have an eternal perspective. And finally, the cure for a troubled heart is the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus went on in this chapter to say, I will send you another comforter, verses 15 to 18. One that would come alongside, the Holy Spirit. The word there, comforter, is parakletos, literally the one that comes alongside. Now, the disciples knew very little about the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, they knew very little until they experienced him in the upper room. Where as they gathered 120, there was a rumbling and tongues of fire sat upon them, and they went out. Peter began to preach under an anointing, and literally they turned the world upside down as the power of the Holy Spirit was unleashed, and the church was set ablaze. These men would be moved by the Holy Spirit to write the New Testament. They would turn the world upside down. They would do greater works than they could ever imagine. Can you imagine if they all knew this? Imagine if Jesus put on a video screen that night in an upper room, all they would do how much easier it would have been. How much easier it would be for you and I if God would just give us a chapter, tell us what next week and next year looks like. The one thing missing in our day, it's always missing, it's missing a lot in the pandemic, is truth. We really don't know who to believe or what to believe. And that's why this declaration, I am the way, the truth, and the life, has to be an anchor to our soul. It has to be. Uh, we rely on doctors and governors and people in high places, but the truth has to be the anchor to our soul. And I think it's the Holy Spirit that's going to guide us through this pandemic. This has been my one prayer since it began. I've only seen the church lead one time in my 38 years as a Christian. Uh, it certainly didn't lead in the AIDS epidemic. Rock stars actually did. Um, but it was in the area of human trafficking. 
I think Gary Halligan, International Justice Mission, and some other agencies uh, brought to the forefront and led as the church has never led before. I will be very sad if we take our cues from the dominant culture once again. So I'm praying every Christian hits a reset button, every Christian gets with God, that God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, calms your troubled heart and then begins to open your eyes and speak to you about ways we can make a difference, ways we can gather, ways we can help people. This happened, like I said before, it happened in the year 165. When a plague swept through the mighty Roman Empire, wiping out, listen to this, one-third of the population. It happened again in 251 when 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome alone. Those infected were abandoned by their families to die in the streets. The government was helpless and the emperor himself succumbed to the plague. Priests fled to their temples and people uh, had flocked to comfort and explanation. People were too weak to help themselves. If the smallpox did not kill you, hunger, thirst, and loneliness would. The effect on wider society was catastrophic. Yet following the plagues, the good repetition of Christianity was confirmed and its population grew exponentially. Why? Christians did not come armed with intellectual answers to the problem of evil. They did not enjoy a supernatural ability to avoid pain and suffering. What they did have was water and food and their presence. In short, if you knew a Christian, you were statistically more likely to survive. And if you were survived, it was the church that offered the most loving, stable, and social environment. It was not clever apologetics, strategic political organization, or the witness of martyrdom which converted an empire so much as it was the simple conviction of normal women and men that they did not, for the least of their neighbors, they did it for Christ. Oh my gosh, could that happen again? Could the church once again lead as it's never led before? Can we listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit? Can we, can we pray for the winds of the Spirit to lead us and guide us? Christian Herfitter said this more eloquently than I ever could. He said, wouldn't it be wonderful if in our time we Christians could primarily become known for the generous, selfless love of our neighbors rather than the many things we oppose and judge. The world we're entering is going to shame us. Not as Christians, it's going to shame us because we didn't stand on a circle to get a cup of coffee. It's already happened to me. May these be our little chances to be kind and generous and loving. Again, people don't know where to turn. Foundations have been destroyed. Their hearts are troubled. This may be the singular witness, not a live stream, not a new way to do church. A simple person on a dotted line waiting for a cup of coffee. Ravi Zacharias said, love is the greatest apologetic we have. It's the legacy Jesus left us. It's all John really talked about. The Holy Spirit will comfort our hearts. Fear will subside. God will speak to us. And we will overcome. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that you live inside us. That we are the temple. 
of the Holy Spirit. God, would you not unite your church as you've never united it before? May we cut through the politics and the pandemic and the fear as those whose hearts have been calmed by your spirit. May we enjoy fellowship with you and one another. In Jesus' name.